Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast, where three editors take you around the art world. I'm your host, Editorial Associate Isaac Kaplan, joined by Deputy Editor Alex Forbes. Hey, Isaac. And, okay, Molly, your title is so long. Fairs Editor and Associate Features Editor Molly Gottschalk. Hey, Isaac. So, this week, the ninth Berlin Biennial inspired very strong reactions from hatred to praise. We'll tell you a little bit about what that biennial is, why it matters. Um, both Molly and Alex went to see it, and we'll get their thoughts. Next up, our org disavowal. We're going to take a little bit of a bigger look at this issue. What does it mean for artists who appropriate work? Where does authenticity come from? What's the legal? What's the conceptual backing to all these ideas? And then, of course, white wine in the art world. We'll tell you where we'll be drinking it this week. So first topic, the ninth Berlin Biennial. Before we kind of get into the strong reactions that everyone had, um, Alex and Molly both attended this year, curated by the New York Collective Dis. Why is the Berlin Biennial important? There are so many in so many cities. Why are we talking about this one? Well, I think, I mean, Berlin has been at kind of the forefront of contemporary art for the last 20 years or so. Constantly seems a place where artists can go, be a little bit outside the constraints of the art market as such. Even the galleries there operate in a slightly different way than they would in New York or London. So I think there's there's been this feeling that, you know, a Berlin biennial can be slightly more experimental. And the first one, you know, in 1998 was created by Klaus Biesenbach, Hans Ulrich Obrist, and Nancy Spector, all of whom have gone on to kind of shape contemporary art as we know it. Klaus at PS1 and MoMA, Hans Ulrich Obrist at the uh, Serpentine and Nancy Spector now is the chief curator of the Brooklyn Museum. So between them, many other curators, countless artists who have been kind of made their careers at this biennial, um, it's it's still very much seen as a temperature taker on what's relevant in the art world today. So that's a pretty uh, illustrious biography, Molly. What did you actually think of this year's edition? Did it did it kind of dazzle you? It did. This was my first time visiting the Berlin Biennale. And Berlin. And Berlin. And I actually loved it. Um, I wasn't sure what what to expect going into it, having read so many very negative reviews. Yeah, negative, I think, is the fair word for it, yeah. Going into something like that, having read quite a few negative reviews can sometimes shape your experience, but I actually had quite an, an opposite reaction. So many of you know artists that I'm really interested in right now were represented. I was really excited to see a VR piece by John Raffman. There was exceptional amount of video work that I thought was really strong. Cecile B. Evans. Yeah, Cecile B. Evans has been getting a ton of, I mean, there's been a lot of positive and negative, probably more negative um, reviews of the show, but What the Heart Wants, which is Evans's piece, has been sort of like roundly praised. And I'm kind of curious about, you know, we'll talk about the why people didn't like the show in a, in a minute, but I'm curious about why maybe you think that that work has managed to cut across like every review is like being super positive. So the piece is set in this really fantastic environment where you walk downstairs and you see a runway that's surrounded by water and Cecile's video is at the end of this runway so you can sit and watch the piece. And it's really about the future of humanity and what it means to be human, what it means to be human in this world where humans are fusing with the digital world. And what I think is really interesting about this piece in particular and perhaps why it was so positively received is, you know, if you look at some of the criticisms about the Biennale and about how, you know, it wasn't touching on some of the really major 
concerns for things that are happening in our world today. Historically, if you look at many of the Biennales in the past, they've touched on very serious themes, you know, things like migration or political relevance or trauma in the 20th century. Um, and, you know, some have said that this Biennale is, is lacking those types of themes. But I think looking at the way technology is entering our lives and unraveling in this very real way that we can all feel like this is obviously a concern that touches everyone. So it's a good moment, I guess, to we've been hinting at it so far, this podcast, these negative reviews. So the, basically, I've, I've read a few of the major ones. I, did, I haven't actually seen the show, so I'm going to have to trust you guys on, on the response. But basically, their criticism stems kind of down to the idea that this is a vapid, ironic, glossy show that's not tackling the dark context, the dark political context in which it is actually taking place. It's in Berlin, there's refugees. This it happened before Brexit obviously, but you know that's that's coming into play right now as well. So there's sort of a dark mood and it, and it people are sort of seeing that it feels out of place and it's also not they're reading it as not very critical. They're sort of seeing it as an endorsement of these systems in some way. So, Alex, you had a very different take on this. Can you maybe sort of, you know, get up on the soapbox and uh, give us your thoughts here? <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, in general, people like to write negative reviews about biennials. It's one of the few times you really get to do that as a critic these days. So that's kind of one piece. But I, I, And I do think that, like, you know, it could have been a biennial about refugees. But to say that it had to be is, is also a bit kind of, I don't know, narrow-minded about what art can do on a like high level the biennial kind of addresses this paradigm shift that we're going through in society at large so you know on the one hand we have these immediate issues of you know the rise of fascism and the far right and refugee crisis and everything else and there's a generational shift and a reaction against some of the very things that are present in this biennial you know a changing world and a changing way in which we relate to that world so I don't think that, you know, a, a biennial that very much puts those things at the foreground and even in a provocative way to negatively react to that is to negatively react to the world in which you live. And that's fine, but it doesn't seem any less relevant than a show about refugees. And, you know, especially because biennials offer us a chance to kind of look forward, both in terms of what art can do and where we're headed as a society. It's a good time to have a show like this. Okay, I mean, I, I'm, I'm down with that. I get, I get that. But I, I think that I definitely, like, sympathize with some of these criticisms. When you use art to look at an issue, it does matter how you frame it. Not all works of art about the contemporary moment are the same, about politics are the same. So when you have someone pointing attention to fascism with this slogan, why do fascists get to have all the fun? I mean, it sort of seems to me incredibly tone deaf, like so far removed from the impacts and effects of what fascism really is, which we're starting to see now kind of blossoming in Europe. I mean, a lot of people have called out these banners and love them or hate them. I don't think it's like worth necessarily focusing criticism on the whole show around one slogan on one banner. I think there is, you know, a provocative statement there. How far removed from fascism you have to be to make that statement is an open question. I do, however, think that, you know, there is a partially relevant question there, which is very much like, why why are these movements the things that are catching fire right now? Why aren't progressive politics the kind of thing that goes viral and that people want to talk about and that, like... I mean, Bernie Sanders would uh, probably 
disagree with But Bernie that. Sanders didn't win, win the Democratic nomination. Donald Trump won the Republican nomination. You know, I think if like Donald Trump hadn't won and Marco Rubio had won, we'd be in a very different position about that question. But, you know, we're, we're in a world in which the fascist politics are the ones that are popular at the moment. And I think to posit a question in a provocative way around that isn't a surface level gesture. Yeah, I just feel like why are the fascists winning is also like a provocative question that doesn't make it feel like the gloss atop a magazine is sort of what you're going for. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think you have like the Donald Trump getting to have very much fun tweeting out and Hillary Clinton having a uh, a social media team that, you know, says delete your account or right. uh, whatever, no, and that catches fire. But like, I mean, I think that there's no way to, I think like, that's interesting because, you know, we're seeing like the, the vocabulary of the digital age interacting with politics in like a real way. This also speaks to the vocabulary that um, DIS has developed and has become known for. They were founded in 2012. It's a New York-based collective of four members now, though it was originally larger. And, you know, they look critically at art, fashion, mass media. They have their own sort of counterculture. The name DIS should tell you you know, a little bit about their approach. They're ironic. They have a strong sense of humor. But, you know, I don't think it's it's very thoughtful. It's very intelligent. I don't think that it should come across as flippant. I think you see an example of this curatorial influence and sort of their aesthetic coming through, I mean, throughout the Biennale, obviously. But, you know, I think of Inga Holland's um, hater blocker contact lenses that sculpture by Anna Udenberg, which is a woman bent over with a selfie stick taking a picture of, of her, her rear of her, her rear, rear end yeah <laughs> that one that was something of a lightning rod for a lot of the criticism I mean a, a lot of that stuff that I read was like there's no amount of identity like of gender theory that can make this not you know empty but I think that is like genuinely a part of our culture right now so I think it is like a kind of high horse position that we tend to get in the art world that like oh, well, that's that's lame, that's not critical. That's And, and like, the vast majority of society is not self-critical. It is doing this stuff. So, like, mirroring that and having a reaction to it is fine. But we can't say that that doesn't belong in a museum or, or isn't reflective of the way that art has always reflected society. Yeah, I see that. But I definitely think that, like I said, kind of a difference between sort of reflecting the way the world is right now and being critical of the way that the world is right now. I don't think that, like, to sort of jump back to some of the things we were talking about, the status quo is popular with people in one way or another. So there's a thin line between reflecting to be critical and reflecting as a way to sort of double down. But I think it again speaks to that kind of paradigm shift that we were talking a little bit before. Like on the internet, things aren't critical in the way that they would be before. Like, and is the most effective means like sitting in kind of hollowed rooms having very intellectual conversations where it's an echo chamber or is it getting out into the world where somebody that likes to take selfies of their rear um, which i don't know if that's like a popular thing to do I'm yeah not, i'm not up I, on my memes i have but, never done it for the record uh, <laughs> good to know you know it's an open question to me if that isn't also art and i think like kind of what we're doing is also a little bit of what the problem around this whole biennial is like we're getting caught up in these controversial works, which like there's always works that are maybe not great or are great in a biennial. But I think one of the really important things to look at are some of these pieces that do take a forward-looking tack that do kind of address 
on a further future level how we can overcome some of these issues that we're facing today, whether it be fascism or refugee crisis, etc. I wrote in my review that like there's this kind of swap from a revolutionary Marxism to an evolutionary Marxism. You see this in uh, Christopher Calendron Thomas, and sorry Christopher if I mispronounce your middle name, uh, his installation New Elam, which you know takes this footage of the Tunnel Tigers, which were a group in Sri Lanka that were wiped out by the that nation's armed forces after a 26 year long struggle, and were you know among many revolutionary Marxist groups that have been wiped off of the face of the earth by the capitalist machine, and you know rather than kind of continually positing like, oh, we need a revolution, we have to go against and like just saying what's bad about capitalism. New Elam takes this tack of like, well, how do we take things like Airbnb and other kind of sharing economy technology platforms? He actually start, it's a startup um, that he founded for this. And how do we eliminate citizenship and home ownership? How can you, you know, live and work wherever you want because you're a freelancer and you're you know, office is your laptop around the world. And I think, you know, getting rid of scarcity, getting rid of like some of these kind of contentious political issues through technology is a through line in the biennial that really does kind of resonate on a more longer view of how we improve society. So moving on from Berlin, we're going to talk a little bit about art disavowals and what powers an artist has over their work after it's sold. Yeah, Isaac, you wrote this piece. um, And I think, you know, pulling back, it will probably be surprising to some people out there that artists can even say down the line after a piece is out there in the world, hey, that's not my work. Yeah, it's really interesting because in a lot of ways, this is totally antithetical to the way property was conceived of at like the founding of the country, which is that once you own something, you can do whatever you want with it, essentially. Um, There's some limitations, obviously, copyright, but very rarely does it apply to like the physicality of the object itself, rather than the ability to profit profit off of it. So artists were granted this power, which is a very European power. It comes from this idea of moral rights. The artist is sort of this individual who has complete control over their work, who has some special, almost, you know, I don't want to say godlike, but important power over the meaning and physicality of the work itself. And it stems from a law called VARA, which basically applies to only a select little sliver of visual artists. So not every artist can disavow their work. Not every artist has control over the work after it's sold, but some do. And it's pretty powerful and it can kind of throw a wrench in the art market though honestly sometimes it's the art market that kind of respects the artist even more than the law so you wrote about one particular example mm. where this took place that is kind of the the headlining example of when uh, when VAR has been invoked i wonder if you can kind of just like parse that for the yeah, listeners yeah an artist named katie noland who is a conceptual artist to paint her with like a very broad brush but is among the most expensive uh, living women selling at auction today. And she has made headlines, strangely, because she's removed herself from the art world so forcefully, even as she fetches these high prices at auction. But as we know, she actually maintains a sort of strict control over how her work is sold and marketed. So the, the sort of instance that I talked about happened a few years ago at Sotheby's when she inspected one of her works Cowboys milking, which was supposed to go up at auction and found damage to the corners of this aluminum, this big aluminum piece. And even though the 
consigner had it restored prior to auction, had Sotheby's sort of said it was in good condition when they got it. You know, her word trumped those those two other those two other forces. So she's kind of a prominent example of that. Though other artists have done it, Ibrahim Ahama recently did it and lots of other artists kind of maintain control over their work after it's sold if they're lucky enough to be one of the select types covered by vara so like video artists have no power for example well that's surprising so it doesn't cover video does it not cover any other kinds of art yeah it doesn't cover performances and i think it that sort of just shows how difficult it is to wrestle property owners rights away from them i mean in this case, artists sort of are basically getting the rights of property owners, but in the United States, it's very hard to wrestle away sort of who owns a, a physical object, uh, wrestle away powers from them, and give them to like some artist potentially threatening the owner's economic interest. That's sort of not what the United States is all about. You end up with, with nothing if, if I all of a sudden say that my artwork that cost a million dollars is not my artwork anymore. Potentially. I mean, that's another one of these interesting questions. It's like how, in what sphere does a disavowal count? So, you know, if a physical work basically, you know, maybe this consigner of Kat- Katie Nolan's work, the work looks relatively fine. It's just in the corners. They don't lose the, they don't lose the art value, but they've lost the market value. So where a disavowal kind of hits the bottom line depends on what you're trying to get out of a work of art, I think. Another reason to buy what you love. Another reason to buy what you love. I also think it's interesting to try to imagine parallels in other industries. Like as a writer, you know, something you published five years ago, you decide it no longer represents your your thoughts or you're not proud of it any longer. Or you don't want your name on it. You know, you don't have that ability to, to just turn back time and, and erase that piece or or take your byline off of uh, generally. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, one thing to just kind of take away from from this conversation is that, you know, if you want control over your writing, of, of your fashion, over any sort of creative thing that you do, especially art, it's probably good to just make someone sign a contract. And Well, there is, so there is a contract for artworks that yeah. does allow you to have a little bit more control. You spoke to Hans Hacke about this. Um, yes, it's it's uh, called ARTSA, which I won't. It's a very long acronym, but it basically governs uh, resale rights and gives artists maybe more powerfully fifteen percent of any resale of, of of a work, which is kind of huge. And Hans Hacke still uses this, even though he's I think the only one who officially or on record uh, uses uses this contract with every sale. And he told me that it's sort of to deter people who see art as an investment but of course among the other provisions of the powers granted by this contract which it should be said has never been tested in court is the ability to govern how your work is displayed and shown and he also said which was something that i thought was interesting he talked about how if someone doesn't sign the agreement at any point in the work sort of transfer he will disavow it so interestingly this legal document has kind of become deeply entwined with the conceptual fabrics of the work of art itself and kind of speaks to the way the law can kind of become a part of a, a work of art. And do we see any movement on this issue? I mean, are there, do, do you see that these rights will get more prevalent in the future, less prevalent? Is there kind of a, any kind of generational shift there? I think that it's interesting. The original contract came around in the 70s as a response to Vietnam, to kind of institutional critique and, and looking at how museums and other institutions were sort of entwined in the systems of power that a lot of these artists were criticizing. So in a sense, I think that the climate is ripe for another kind of push. I mean, I think there's a lot of similar sort of sentiments about you know big banks and and we talked a little bit about earlier you know these movements these counter status quo movements so i would be interested to see if a lot of artists who are 
dealing with these ideas conceptually add a certain kind of legal framework to lend their maybe conceptual gestures teeth in, in a way that maybe conceptual artists working in the 70s didn't by and large but only time will tell and of course these things do really threaten an artist's bottom line hans was only able to do it because he was a teacher uh, at cooper union so he had a guaranteed salary because it does it does impact whether or not a work sells in a real tangible way so it's hard to just kind of ask artists to be like demand your moral rights but i don't see any movement in congress or elsewhere and resale rights legislation has died every time it's been brought up. The only way the original VARA legislation actually got passed was because the sponsor, Ted Kennedy, tucked it into a list of judicial nominations that the Senate couldn't vote down. It wasn't like a gung-ho movement by like a bunch of senators who loved painting. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was like a, it was like a <laughs> political you know, house of cards move. And on that note, it's time for where we'll be drinking white wine in the art world this weekend. So Alex, we'll start with you. Well, this weekend, I'm going to combine my art with a little beach time. Uh, This piece uh, by a friend of mine, Katerina Grossa, opened in the Rockaways last weekend. She painted Fort Tilden's aquatics building. She does these very, like, large-scale spray painting installations. There was one in the Venice Biennale that was was one of the most popular works last year. And Molly, what are you going to be getting? I won't be drinking white wine there because that would be illegal. (laughs) It's and. Good. I'm glad you're in a law-abiding. Yeah, I'll bring a paper bag at, at least. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> I will be going to see Diane Arbus's exhibition in the beginning at the Met. I believe it opens on the 11th. I'm really excited for that show. Yes, me too, because it looks at... I, I love Diane Arbus, and this exhibition looks at the first seven years of her career. I mean, she'd started photographing when she was 18 years old, but I think it was like 15 years later when she like really began this period where she developed her style. I read that she wrote on the first roll of film during that time, like like number one, you know? So it's like very much the like definitive start of like Diane Arbus as we know her. Awesome, and that's at the Breuer, right? Yeah, Okay. sorry, cool. yeah, Matt Breuer. And I will be going to the Brooklyn Museum to see their um, masks and global African art exhibition um on the 9th there's this uh masquerade so i'm i'm you know i'm not reading too much about it not going into it with any preconceived ideas but it sounds really it sounds really interesting um so yeah that's it for this week's edition thanks to our guests this week alex and molly for joining us Uh, please remember to rate and subscribe to our podcast on itunes we had production help this week from abigail kane and our producer as always is joe sykes Our theme music is by Broke for Free. See you guys next time.